The views, ideas, and content of well seekers and their guests are their own opinions, and you should always seek additional professional help around any of the issues discussed here on Well Seekers. Hello, and welcome to Well Seekers. I'm your host, Lucia. So honored to be here as we continue our journey in rising and coming back in mind, life, and love and continue our series on rising and coming back from addiction. We are entering into part five of this six-part series. If you've missed the first handful of episodes, we so encourage you to go back and take a listen as we journey through treatment options for those that are suffering, as we talked about how to rebuild relationships and families um, when you start in recovery from an addiction. As we talked about the holistic aspect as well, working on your nutrition. And next week, we're going to talk about the power of fun um, when it comes to recovery as well. This week, our focus, though, is on something that I truly have a heart and passion for, which is policy change and social change around mental health specifically, and in this case, addiction. Years ago, I volunteered with an organization um, to help lobby for mental health parity, which of course is now part of the Affordable Care Act. And that to me just lit a fire in me. We went to DC um, for multiple days and lobbied Congress about including specific legislation around eating disorders at the time and eating disorder treatment and making sure that it was covered at parity as well. That experience on the Hill in DC and talking to senators made me realize that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, you do have a voice and your voice matters. You don't even need to go to DC to have your voice count. There's so much that can be done on the local level, in your town, in your city, right? Even in your state. And I thought policy was always something that needed to be as grand as going to DC and lobbying. And don't get me wrong, that was truly impactful and will always be something that um, started my passion for policy change. But lending your voice to policy change can be done in so many different ways. It's as simple as sometimes signing a petition, sending a a letter to a local uh, representative talking about an issue that matters in your state or in your town or in your city, making a phone call, attending a meeting, right? Even if you do have limited time, that email, that phone call truly does mean so much. You, as one of their constituents, does matter to them. I think oftentimes we we know that lobbying and the lobbying power of big business can play a big role in where in where votes go sometimes, but that doesn't diminish what your voice says and that your voice truly does count. In my experience on a local level, on a national level, on a state level, my voice has counted. And I'm not a big business lobbying superpower, right? I'm just an average citizen as well. It was through the experience of getting involved in local issues, state issues, national issues, that I truly have seen the impact of policy, that I truly have seen that writing a letter does get a response, making a phone call does get a response. If you know me, you know I'm I'm passionate about healthcare reform in general. Um, I think that as a nation, we can do better and we deserve better. Um, And one of those areas that I am passionate about is, of course, mental health and addiction specifically. 
which is why in this series and in the series we do um, following this, I wanted to start talking about policy that matters. So on today's show, we are welcoming Courtney Hunter. Courtney is the VP of State Policy for Shatterproof. Shatterproof is an incredible organization um, working to help change policy in the field of addiction and mental health. Courtney and I are going to talk about some of the um, campaigns that Shatterproof is doing right now and also talk about how you can get involved in helping support Shatterproof policy that they're trying to get passed and just in general, how you can get involved in if you do have a passion for seeing reform in addiction policy or seeing reform in mental health policy, how you can get involved as well. I think the main point of today's show is to start the conversation around policy change and how every voice does matter and how if you have five seconds, five minutes, or if you have five days, um, regardless of your level of engagement, there's a space for you. So stick around, join us. We're going to come back with Courtney Hunter, VP of State Policy at Shatterproof. Um, and we're going to talk about ways that we can all make a difference in the world of policy, especially surrounding addiction. So stick around and join us. We'll be right back on Well Seekers. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com you're listening to well seekers a show where the journey is just as important as the destination Welcome back to Well Seekers, and I am honored to have our guest joining us today, Courtney Hunter. Courtney is the Vice President of State Policy for Shatterproof. Um, in this role, Courtney is responsible for engaging state policymakers to help eliminate barriers to addiction treatment access and increase training and education of healthcare professionals. Prior to Shatterproof, Courtney spent 11 years at the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. She's also led campaigns and high-level partnerships with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Major League Baseball, and the Meth Project. Courtney Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today on Well Seekers. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So Courtney and I were talking um, prior to recording our interview together about how I am... I, when someone says policy and bills and change, I could not be more on board um, and excited when people start talking about policy because I believe and I have seen experience-wise true change come from policy. So I'm sure you've experienced the same. Courtney was saying that she's also um, gets excited when people start talking about policy. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work and what specifically drew you to what you're working on now with addiction. Yeah, sure. And, and thank you for that. Um, it's good to, you know, have another optimist in terms of policy and, you know, what uh, good change and true change can come from meaningful policy. Um, so I, you know, like many Americans um, have personal experience with addiction and um, it's really a, a family disease, mental, mental health and addiction and just have a long uh, family legacy of mental health issues um, and behavioral health issues and 
really coming from a standpoint of not understanding um, that they are diseases, that these are lifelong chronic conditions, and that there are treatments available for people. And it's not behavior change, you know, when you're addicted, it's not something that you can just snap your fingers and do. And I think, you know, we're, we've changed sort of our societal beliefs on that in just the last couple of years, I think. From a personal standpoint, um, my my sister struggles with mental illness and, and, you know, addiction. And she, you know, really had a believer in, in my mom and a supporter in my mom and who really drove the bus on her treatment and it was a different time. It was not as, I think, uh, maybe messy as it is now and complicated, um, although it's still very complicated. And, you know, really was was able to intervene at kind of an earlier age. And I can say that, you know, my sister and I have a great relationship. She's doing really well. Um, but, you know, I do a lot of this work, like many other people in this field, from a personal, you know, standpoint, because I've been affected by it in my family. Absolutely, which brings such a, a different lens sometimes when you do have personal experience and are working on the, the policy change and shifts, you know so much more as well, right? What What is needed, not just from professional statistics, but from that personal experience, too. Yeah, and I think really, you know, from a policy perspective, what uh, the way that we've treated addiction in the past has really been rooted in stigma um, around people with behavioral health conditions um, and not rooted in science. And what we're doing now with policy and what's very exciting about it is, A, you know, we're finally, um, I think, investing not to the level that I'd like to see, but we're putting, you know, a lot more money into the issue, which is critically important. And, you know, secondly, we're um, we're focusing on a public health response. So really bringing addiction into the medical mainstream with, you know, covering medication, for example, um, and, you know, making sure that insurance providers are covering all levels of care. And those are really um, tough policies at the state level that we have to enact and go state by state to really reinforce and, and protect people. But that's a huge shift from, you know, even where we were a couple of years ago or, you know, 10 years ago in terms of treating addiction and um, policing addiction really on the fringes of society. What do you think, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but what do you think is attributed to that shift? I, I have read so much research on it, which I may dive in on to get your perspective on it. But in your experience working in this really day to day, what do you think caused that shift or has caused that shift? I think a, a huge um, part of the shift has just been the sheer um, number of people that we've lost, the scale of the problem. Um, you know, you look at the opioid crisis has really driven um, the fatal overdose numbers up um, drastically in the last 15 years. We're talking about skyrocketing numbers. And so when you have more people that are affected by, you know, anything, it's going to be a, a bigger, you know, um, topic of conversation. And I think what started to happen is in changing, you know, the way that we're looking at this as a society is these are our 
our sisters, these are our mothers, these are our children, these are our colleagues, these are our friends. The more people that it's affecting, everybody starts to know somebody, like cancer. One in three people have will have cancer. It's like very similar, you know, in terms of the number of people that are affected by addiction. And so um, that, I think just the growing, the sheer number and the scale of the problem has, you know, changed our outlook and also, you know, the resources that we're bringing to bear to address the issues. I was reading a recent study that said that almost 50% of Americans, it was 47%, are going to either know someone personally or have a family member that's in some way um, touched by addiction, right, or experiences addiction. And that's staggering. If we think about our population in this country alone, 50%, right? That's over 150 million people, right? It's insane. And you, um, you know, you think about where we are right now culturally with the pandemic and how, you know, behavioral health conditions like anxiety and depression are really seeping into our day-to-day. Um, so many people are struggling. The economic recessions, job loss, isolation, all of these things are correlated with increases in usage and and also, you know, addiction and mental health issues. So it's something that I like to sound the alarm about because we need to be, we need to be providing more resources for people that are accessible, whether that's telemedicine um, or medication, things that fit within their lives um, that, that are going to save lives. I know you mentioned too, from a public health perspective, bringing that into the conversation on policy. I'd love to get into what you are working on from a policy perspective. I know we talked about treatment access and education with healthcare professionals. Is there any prevention work um, that Shatterproof is doing as well? Because like you just said, right, we, we are in the middle of an economic, um, we're not, they're not using the word recession, but I think it could be used, right, in a lot of ways. But with that does come an increase sometimes, and the term that we use in the field is deaths of despair. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar yes. with that. Yes. yes, which suicide, drugs, and alcohol-related um, deaths, and there has been a dramatic increase even in the short amount of time that has been monitored thus far. Do you have public health prevention initiatives that that you have in the works as well? Yeah, so on a number of fronts, I think, um, you know, just in response to that, right now we are in full um, put out the fire mode, which is we need to save lives. We need naloxone in every single home. There's a ton of adult children living at home right now who might be using fentanyl um, has infiltrated the drug supply in a frightening way. It is so cheap. It is so deadly. Um, we need to to have naloxone in the home because people cannot recover. They cannot go into treatment if they are not alive. So we have to save lives. That's our, our number one priority right now. We have a, we have a, a life-saving medication called naloxone that can really reduce an overdose and give people a chance. Um, And that's incredible. And it should be in, you know, like a fire extinguisher. It should be everywhere. So we, we, A, need that. We need more access to treatment, to different levels of care. Going to treatment doesn't necessarily mean a 30-day inpatient program. It can look like a lot of different things, like intensive outpatient or medication. Um, And so to address your point on prevention from a state policy perspective, really what we're working on is trying to integrate behavioral health care into the primary care setting. 
so that we're identifying and we're screening for addiction early because what's happening right now is we're treating addiction at stage four in the emergency rooms. People are overdosing, we're reviving them, we're, we're sending them back out. That is not an effective strategy to, to treat this, this condition and this problem. We have to be catching people at stage one and intervening early. And so um, what I'm really working on is within state Medicaid agencies and working really closely with states to expand the, the payment incentives and have that practice transformation uh, for physicians to know what addiction looks like, to screen for it, and then to you know get them the right help or treatment if needed, whether that's a care coordinator or, you know, an addiction psychiatrist or a mental health professional. We need to be doing those things earlier um, in the disease state. So that's one aspect of the prevention. But I could talk about this for a really long time. So, um, no, yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, you probably know this too since you are in the front lines, right? There's been a reduction in usage of PCPs, right? And PCPs are so often, like you you said the education is so vital there because so many people use their primary care physician for everything, right? As mental health providers sometimes as, right? Like they are the front line and there's been a reduction because so many people have started going to urgent cares, walk-ins and not seeing the same people. Mm-hmm. Has that influenced your policy at all? Not, not to dis- detract from right PCPs, but is there also a movement to get urgent cares um, and those doctors educated or do they fall under the PCP that you're lobbying for? They would sort of fall under the the PCP. We're also working with a lot of the medical societies and the accreditation bodies to get addiction training in medical schools. We're working on a a federal bill right now called the MATE Act, which would require um, some sort of level of addiction curriculum in medical schools, which is like mind-blowing that that doesn't exist um, as of right now. But we need that because we need to, um, you know, we need to have a question on medical exams before you become a doctor, um, how do you identify and treat addiction? Because what's happening now is physicians don't necessarily want to screen for addiction or for mental health because they don't know where to send people. They're like, where are the referrals? You know, um, they don't have a trustworthy source. They don't know what to do. And we need to arm them with the resources to effectively intervene and treat addiction like the medical condition that it is. So, so important. So on the prevention end of things, we're going to share, of course, your website, but are there specific bills that if people want to get involved in that aspect of policy change that you can recommend researching, looking for on your site um, to direct people there? Yes, there's a ton that people can do. And um, I will have to say that um, just as in context, uh, you know, uh, even a couple of years ago, I would call offices on the Hill and work with, you know, uh, different members of Congress, and they would have no idea about this issue. They'd say, okay, maybe I'll send you to the education person or healthcare. Now, just in the last five years, almost every congressional office has has a dedicated staff member who's working on health or addiction issues um, or the opioid crisis. And so that also is signaling a huge change in in the prioritization of this issue, um, which is going to save lives as well. At shatterproof.org, which is our website, you can take action on a number of bills 
reach out to your representatives and urge them to pass this meaningful legislation. One is the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, um, the MAT Act, which would uh, get rid of the buprenorphine waiver requirement for physicians. And why this is so important is physicians can prescribe opioids, but unless they have a special training, um, they can't prescribe the treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, and this has really hamstrung our entire response in terms of you know treating um, people with, with addiction. Buprenorphine and medications are like the gold standard in treatment. Um, and so we really need to, to expand access. For those that don't know, Courtney, can you just explain a, in a little bit more detail? So buprenorphine, I'm sorry. So buprenorphine is a medication and, and there's three medications um, that, that are FDA approved that can be utilized to treat opioid use disorder. So somebody who is struggling with addiction, um, uh, they... Um, uh, they're the best uh, sort of lifeline that we have to get people into recovery. After somebody, when somebody is overdosing, you can revive them and save their life with naloxone. But to get into long-term recovery, medication is off, often the gold standard um, to help people with treatment. Um, and so we need to really make sure that we have access to those medications, just like we would for any other disease. I mean, one in 10 people who need treatment for addiction receive it. We would not accept that for any other condition. So two questions there, and you can answer them in whatever order feels right. But why are doctors not allowed to prescribe the drugs that you just mentioned? Because that seems incredibly counterintuitive to both them as physicians and the fact that they can prescribe opioids, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then second, what do you think that barrier to treatment is? Oh, I have, okay, I have so many responses to the question. <laughs> so um, the, the reason that buprenorphine um, in particular and medications for addiction treatment are um, sort of up against this firewall is because of federal legislation um, about 20 years ago, it was called the Data 2000 Act, um, that really restricted use. Um, and the intention was good in that buprenorphine morphine, methadone, these FDA-approved medications, they can be abused. Um, and there is potential for diversion as well. But this was really regulated before the onset of the opioid crisis and the opioid epidemic. And at the time, they didn't foresee um, that opioid use disorder would be, you know, the large uh, problem that it is today. So the, the impetus for that regulation was really let's make sure that physicians that are uh, treating addiction know what they're doing. And that makes a ton of sense. But when you have anybody prescribing opioids, you know, nurse practitioners prescribing opioids, the fact that they can't treat opioid use disorder makes zero sense. And so we're really advocating along with pretty much everybody else in the field of, you know, addiction right now and people who treat addiction um, to get rid of that waiver requirement. I mean, it makes zero sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And we've been um, really, you know, championing this for a long time. Uh, You also just mentioned and asked about barriers to treatment. I think stigma is something we have to talk about. That's a huge problem. I mean, even stigma among, you know, providers, like I don't want those patients, quote unquote, in my, you know, waiting area. Um, There is so much stigma out there. And I often compare it to like, if your child had heart disease or juvenile arthritis or cancer, God forbid, your neighbors would show up with casseroles and they would volunteer to take your you know, kid to carpool. They would help you right, in whatever way they could. When your child or your you know, loved one has addiction, you are cowering in shame. People are saying, that's a bad family. I don't want to know those people, right? They must have done something wrong with that kid. The stigma is unbearable. And when we are um, isolated, the problem only gets worse. And there's no good resources out there, you know, um, from friends and neighbors and, and other family. What do you think it would take to shake that stigma? Because it is, there has been an increase in conversation, right? There has been movements absolutely to help reduce stigma, but it is still pervasive, right? Like it is still absolutely there in my experience um, and, and the underlining current of conversations. What do you think it would take to really, I mean, to use your company's word, right? To shatter, to shatter that stigma? Yeah. Well, I think what, you know, Shatterproof started doing, um, you know, because we were founded by a gentleman who lost his son and stigma was a huge part of why, um, you know, he he felt the way that he did and, and sort of in despair, right? I think that having walks, um, that's something that Shatterproof, you know, did early on was like, we do walks for diabetes and walks for cancer. Like, let's have a walk for addiction. Um, And changing hearts and minds is going to take time. uh, But I think we're on the right track. And fundamentally and culturally, it's about treating people with compassion. Stigma is the absence of compassion, and our policies are really rooted in stigma and not uh, compassion and not science. Um, And so to answer your question in a more simpler way, I think it's cultural and societal. So it's, you know, it's, it's hearts, changing hearts. Um, There's some things that we can do to, to do that. It's people sharing stories and coming out and sharing what happened to their family, what was helpful for their family or what was helpful for, for them or a loved one when they were going through treatment and not being silent. And then us also working to dismantle these stigmatized policies and replace them with ones that make sense um, and are scientific. Could you just as an overview, um, if I know that you started talking about some of the work, are there any other pieces of specific legislation if someone wants to get involved that their voice could can tribute to change? Yeah, there's a, a couple of things. So I mentioned the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act to get rid of the waiver requirement to prescribe medication for addiction treatment. Um, also the MATE Act to make sure that there is medical education on addiction um, in medical schools and residency programs. There's a number of other bills um, that are uh, happening right now in Congress. There is what's called CARA 2.0, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. Um, this is sort of the the second version of that bill that was signed into law in 2016. And this is a really comprehensive look at investing in prevention for schools and young adults, inter 
intervention, treatment, recovery support services, family support services, um, changing the regulation on telehealth so that we can prescribe medications for addiction um, over an audio call, which is currently not allowed. There's a number of things, but that bill, CARA 2.0, is really comprehensive um, of a lot of things that we, we need to see done. I helped draft a piece of legislation called the Families Support uh, Services for Addiction Act. And this would provide a grant program for uh, states and communities to have family support services. We know that the outcomes for people um, who are struggling, who are kind of in crisis, the outcomes are so much better when their families are involved and we bring them in. You know, we have housing and we sort of love people through this instead of saying, get out of my house and letting people hit rock bottom. Um, so we need to lift up those families with support. And that's that bill is also in, in Congress right now. Um, so those are a couple of the federal bills. And then on the state level, what I'm really passionate about and we're working on at Shatterproof is the opioid settlement is this $26 billion figure is going to happen, come down to the states and the counties at some point this year. We need to make sure that this money is protected um, we do not need a repeat of the tobacco settlement of the 1990s. Two to three percent of those dollars from the tobacco settlement were spent on prevention and cessation programs for nicotine. That is abysmal. We cannot have the same thing happen here. We have an opportunity to protect those dollars at the state level and make sure they don't go into the general treasury, but to make sure that they go into a dedicated fund for opioid prevention, um, addiction resources, and treatment. Obviously, there's many ways to support a policy. All of those deserve support. Um, and I know people are anxious to learn how to, to get involved. Oftentimes when I say policy, people think that they need to be, you know, on the Hill in DC lobbying or on their state, you know, at their state capital lobbying, which is incredible work. I've done it. I actually lobbied for, um, the mental health parity act way back in 2009. Yeah. And it was just the most incredible experience um, doing that in DC. That's so awesome. there's people that love doing that, right? And that's how they want to lend their voice. Are there other ways to support these critical bills without lobbying in that specific Yes, so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can send a letter to your member of Congress and we have on shatterproof.org a whole action center where the letters for these bills are already like pre-programmed and you just have to put in your zip code and it gets sent off to your legislator. And it really matters because there are people in these congressional offices at the federal and the state level who track every single letter that comes in for a bill. And and the reason, the reason that addiction funding and addiction, addiction resources has been cut over the last 30 years is because when they take away money from programs, nobody says a word. There's silence. But when they try and take away money from a cancer program, their phone is ringing off the hook. They're getting letters. There are people knocking at the door. And there's outrage. And they can't do it. We need the same thing for addiction. So it really, really matters when you send letters and when you call. And after you send a letter um, through you know, our action center or however you want to do it, you can also post it on social media. And that is critical because 
it calls out their name and it's public. So it's my favorite thing to do on Twitter is like tag my senators and tag my representative um, and say, take action on this issue now. We need help. Um, and they have to be responsive to that. And so the, the more that as a community, we are um, singing off the same song sheet about what needs to be done, the louder our collective voice will be. You just described that perfectly, Courtney. So many people think this is this is too easy, right? This is not yeah. going to make a difference if I send this, but it is going to make a difference. Those letters do matter. They do count. Phone calls do count. Um, yes, yes. And like petitions, they count all of that stuff. And we make sure, you know, as a national organization that that we're tracking all of that and, and that we're making sure the legislators are paying attention to it. What we're planning to do with this opioid settlement petition that we have to make sure that those dollars are spent on evidence-based programs for addiction, we are, you know, sending the signatories of those um, of the petition to all um, 50 state attorney generals and all 50, or actually 51 state attorney generals and uh, all 50 governors so that they know who in their state is supporting this and that we're going to hold them accountable and we're going to be tracking this. And that's really important, the accountability and the transparency aspect to getting the resources that we need. Courtney, anything else that you feel like is important um, for those that are listening and want to get involved, want to lend their voice for them to know ways that they can reach out to you, ways that they can get involved that we haven't talked about um, or anything else that you feel like is important? Yeah, you can always um, volunteer as an ambassador. Um, we have ambassadors in all 50 states, um, and it's really just about being involved and having a community and, um, you know, learning how you can speak up more. Um, so you can find that information on our website at, at shatterproof.org. And I always like to tell people if you or a loved one needs help, you know, reach out. Um, if you're in crisis, go to treatmentatlas.org or go to shatterproof.org and take our addiction treatment needs assessment um, and figure out what kind of care you or a loved one needs because there is help out there. Um, and that's, you know, that's our primary concern is getting people connected to, to help. Courtney Hunter, Vice President of State Policy at Shatterproof. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And we'll make sure to put all the links below so that you can easily find everything that Courtney shared with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Courtney, so much. And we'll be right back on Wellseekers. After a long day, taking time to love yourself and your friends and your family more well can be a challenge. We're so burnt out and exhausted and stressed from working so hard during the day, we forget to love the people and the places and the things that are important to us. Well, Lucia Knight is here to help. We're gonna be a retreat and a treat for your day. A place to laugh, to connect, and to learn to love yourself and others more well. We're gonna talk about relationships, ways to sleep better. We'll have expert guests, personal stories, maybe even a musical guest or two. We'll share behind the scenes into my own life as well, my friends, my family, and of course, my relationships. So close the door on your day and light up your night with Lucia at night. Also, make sure to check out more at wellseekers.com for simple and real life ways to bring wellness home. I'll see you tonight on Lucia at Night. Thanks for being part of the Seekerhood. We couldn't do this without you. Now, back to the show. 
Thanks so much again to Courtney Hunter for joining us. And thanks to all of you for sticking with us for these incredibly powerful, incredibly important conversations surrounding rising and coming back from addiction. Again, if you've missed any of the shows, we encourage you to check out the last five episodes um, and join us next week as we talk about, or join us in two weeks, actually, as we talk about the power of fun in recovery and ways that if you are in early recovery or trying to get sober, you can join people that are in your same place in recovery, trying to live alcohol and drug-free and the ways that they find fun, meaning, and purpose in their lives without using a substance. If you want to connect with us in the meantime, make sure you check out all of our social media. You can find Well Seekers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Well Seekers. You can find me on Instagram at Lucia Naz. L-U-C-I-A-N-A-Z-Z. We'll put all our links below. We're also going to put all the links for Shatterproof so you can reach out and get involved and make sure to connect with them too. Um, If anything that Courtney talked about or that we talked about really hit your heart today and you want to get involved, we'll make sure to include those links. From all of us here at Well Seekers, thank you so much for being a part of our journey. We're so honored to be a part of yours and to walk with you as you rise and come back in your mind, in your life, and in all aspects of the things that you love. We'll see you in two weeks and always reach out in between on social. I personally love getting messages, so feel free to reach out on social media uh, and we'll talk to you real soon on Well Seekers. How would you like to join the conversation? Email us anytime at hello at wellseekers.com.